If you got your Bible, just keep it, if it's already open to Acts chapter 6, you can keep it there. We're continuing through our uh, journey through the book of Acts, talking about the church being on mission. Now, I went to Auburn for at least two reasons, and that is for an education and to find Mrs. Bowden. And I found her, and I remember being at Auburn, and I saw Lindsay, and I said, I walked up to her, and I said, hey, baby, one day I'm going to marry you. No, I'm just funny. I didn't say that. Uh, we probably would have never gotten married. We would have never had a conversation. She'd be like, uh, a, little too, uh, <laughs> a little too much. I'll find you somewhere else. But uh, we, did, we did start dating, and we got married and everything. And so, you know, we both went to Auburn. we big Auburn fans. But what's interesting is she's from Lexington, Kentucky, and her, and her brother played baseball at the University of Kentucky. And so her family, were, they were big Kentucky fans. And so when we started dating and when we got married, I, I, I was... I started my antennas before I just had no reason to pay attention to Kentucky and all of a sudden I, I, I became very interested in Kentucky and the University of Kentucky especially in basketball because this was before Auburn <laughs> had a, a, a basketball program worth watching and and following and those kind of things but uh, I, I tell you I, the, the most exciting college basketball player I've ever seen is uh, or at least one of the most exciting is a guy by the name of Anthony Davis. Anybody know Anthony Davis? Plays for the Lakers now, played at UK. And uh, what is he famous for? Anybody know what, he's, what his trademark is? The unibrow. Thank you, yes. The, he has the greatest, the world's greatest unibrow of all things, right? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what you want to be known for right there. Uh, but he, I mean, even they have Kentucky shirts that say, fear the brow. <laughs> so there you go. But he, um, he, interesting fact about him, when he was in high school, between his sophomore and senior year, in 18 months, true story, in 18 months, he went from being 6'2 to 6'10. Eight inches in 18 months. Like, that is phenomenal growth. And uh, with that, you can only imagine the kind of growing pains that he had. I mean, of course, you've got physical pain involved with that. You've got also financial pains that his, prob that his family probably suffered. I mean, you know, you go to Foot Locker, get your kids some shoes, and then in two weeks, they, they outgrow them. Uh, and, and, and he also had some position pains to endure. He went from being shooting guard to, uh, to a big man that had to learn to post up and, and block shots and rebound and those kind of things. So it was a... It, the, the point there is that while the growth was good, the growth came with all kind of challenges. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Acts right here. You see, as we, if you've been with us, we've been walking through the book of Acts. And in Acts 2, we see the birth of the church as the Holy Spirit was given. And uh, the first sermon... 3,000 people were saved. Second sermon, 2,000 people were saved. And then it continues to say, it continued to grow more rapidly than it was before. I mean, so we were, we're talking not in the tens or the hundreds. We're talking about it was growing substantially. It was growing in the thousands. So this is a huge, massive amount of people who were coming to faith in Jesus. But then right here for the first time, we see disunity. And the answer, you know what it was? It was the office of deacon. And uh, now this, this passage doesn't actually say the word deacon, but it is certainly implied in the passage. And so as we dig into this text, so by the way, the word in Greek, diakonos, that we translate as deacon, it simply means to, it simply means to serve or, or servant. And so because of that, 
Even though we see the office, and we're going to talk a great deal about deacons in the church right here as we dig through this passage, there are implications for all of us. In fact, we're going to see that there's a role, a vital role, that each member of the church plays. And to the degree that you embrace and recognize the vital role that you play in the church, to that degree the church will be healthy and the church will grow so let's jump into the text look at at chapter 6 verse 1 it says now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number a complaint by the Hellenists arose this is why we know that the early church was a Baptist church (laughs) there there was complaining going on but it says a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution now the daily distribution is was the provision for uh, the needy and, uh, and, and the solution, as we'll see, were deacons. And so the first point that we see right here, I'm going to make four points, is that number one, deacons must protect the unity of the church. Deacons must protect the unity of the church. Because, again, this office arose out of disunity, out of a need to, 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 to push back disunity. So primary uh, object of a deacon and the role of a deacon is to protect the unity of the church. What's interesting is this is the first point of division that we see in the church in the book of Acts. Acts 2, uh, it says that while they were multiplying, they had all things in common, they were unified. We see it again in Acts 3 and 4, and we just see all, these, all this unity. They're unified, they're unified, they're unified, and all of a sudden we see disunity. And the, the issue that was going on is what makes this so cancerous. That if this hairline fracture were to continue, if the apostles didn't push back against this, it would would fracture the very heart of their witness, which is the whole purpose of the church, right? Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses, Jesus says, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we've talked about how a witness in the court of law doesn't really do something. they, They simply tell what's already been done. But in a biblical sense, we are to not only tell what's already been done, we are to model. In other words, we are to live in light of what's already been done. In other words, we are to live in light of the gospel. We are gospel people. And so the world should be able to look to the church and see something that is true about Jesus. And so what was the issue that was going to damage that witness? You know what it was? First of all, it was two, really two things. It was the fact that widows were not being served. You see, widows were some of the most vulnerable people, the most marginalized people in the first century. That's why James 1.27 says true religion is this, taking care of widows and orphans in their distress. You see, God cares about those who do not have a voice. He's an advocate for widows. He is father to the fatherless. This is right at the heart of the character of God. And if, if the church does not care about the poor, the needy, and the most marginalized, They're telling the world something that is not true about Jesus because Jesus cares. We see this all throughout the Gospels and all throughout Scripture. And then the second issue that was really going to damage their unity, therefore damage the the witness they had to the world, was the fact that these were Hellenist widows that were being neglected. 
You see, Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews as opposed to the Aramaic-speaking Jews. And right there, you can see that uh, a divide had happened. And, and it was as though there was a posture that, that there was one group of widows that deserved to be served more than another group of widows. And what's at the heart of that? What's at the heart of that? It, it's, it's, it's recognizing that whether it's a pedigree of language or heritage or even what we could say in our modern time, skin color that someone was more deserving of something than someone else because of the color of their skin or because maybe their language or their nationality. Whatever it is that, that makes us show uh, approval or, or greater uh, affection or greater attention to one group over another, it's wrong and it's, it, it, it models to the world something that is not right about or something that's not true about Jesus. And we know this because the Bible tells us that all mankind, man and woman, all men and women, they're made in God's image. All mankind have sinned against God. All mankind deserve God's punishment. And all mankind can be saved through the sacrificial substitute of Jesus Christ on the cross who, by the way, had a very different skin color than me. He went to the cross to die for that sin that came from one man, Adam, whom we all go back to. And he came to die and then he defeated that sin by resurrecting from the dead. And so we are to show, as the book of James says, no partiality. In fact, Paul says that Jew and Gentile, which a lot, tons of discrimination was going on during that time. And that's kind of what we see evol uh, 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 coming to the surface right here. He says that, that, that um, Jesus broke down the barrier of the dividing wall of hostility, being the law of, Je uh, the law of Moses, by fulfilling it, and he made the two into one new man. In other words, there's unity in Christ. And one of the multifaceted beauties that the church gets to show to the world is that Jesus Christ purchased for God a people from every tribe, every nation, every language, every skin color. And we are unified in Christ. So when we see what's going on in the world today, and this is particularly in our nation, you know what should burden us the most is that the gospel is not getting, is not getting out like it should. Because, you, you know, there's, it's, it's complex. I understand. Th this issue, racial injustice, is very complex. But the answer is very simple. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because really the, the, the fruit answer is, is love your neighbor as yourself, right? Like if everybody in the entire world love their neighbor, right, really love their neighbor as themselves, would we, we wouldn't have any, any of this. We'd have no injustice. We'd have no partiality. We, we, we'd love our neighbor as ourselves. But the Bible tells us that we, it is impossible for us to carry that out consistently in and of ourselves. We must have the Spirit of God. We must have the power of God to empower us to do that. And the gospel is the only answer for that. So, that's what's going on right there. And of course, there's potential division. You can see just how, how deadly this could be. Look at verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we 
should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, we see at least two things that they know right there. First of all, they know their limitations. They know that they're not God. It's, it, it, they, what they don't say is, well, we're just going to burn the candle at both ends and serve tables and preach the word and do everything and, and be in five different places at one time. You don't see that. And yet, let me just say, and, and I speak, I, I'm speaking real personal here. This is a struggle for most pastors. It's been said that it's interesting. Jesus is the only alpha male in history who did not have a Messiah complex. <laughs> The irony, he was the Messiah. But even these men, they had spent a lot of time close to the Messiah, and guess what they didn't happen? Guess what they didn't have? What this reveals right here is they did not have a Messiah complex. Instead, what they did, what they did, in, in, instead of saying, look, we gotta do it all and be it all to all things, they said, we're gonna share this ministry. We're gonna share some of this burden. They knew their limitations. This is a true struggle. In fact, Christopher Ash, I read this book about a year or two ago. It's called Zeal Without Burnout, How to Embrace Sustainable Sacrifice in Christian Ministry. Christopher Ash said this. He said, thousands of people leave Christian ministry every month. This is based on stats. Every month, thousands. He says they, they have not lost their love for Christ or their desire to serve him. Rather, they're just simply exhausted and simply cannot carry on. A pastor who feels like he's got to be all things to all people all the time, if I ever get that way, you know what's really driving that? Ultimately, most fundamentally, what's driving that is pride. It's sinfulness. It's not humility. It's not Christ-likeness. And these men show themselves to be so godly. And I, 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 listen, it can be very uh, um, compelling to receive the flattery, oh, I just love your prayers and I just want you because I love your prayers. I mean, I, I imagine like some of those widows like, Nicanor, who are you? I wanted Peter. I just love his prayers. I love how he serves my table. But that's, you know, that can stroke an ego, but that's not healthy for a church. We need to share this ministry. And so they knew their limitations. They also knew their they knew their priorities. You know, while they were concerned about the widows and that, that need, we need to be concerned about widows and service of different areas of the church, guess what they held in priority? The preaching of God's word. As we'll see in verse four, also prayer. A pastor who does not make time for sound preaching and teaching of God's word is not a good pastor. And it takes time. Sermons don't just get kind of pulled out of the air. And the, a, a church is only, will only grow to the extent that the, the, the preaching of God's word is central. The pulpit drives the church. The word of God uh, is always connected to the power of God being unleashed on the, on the people of God. And so we must protect that. And so that, that goes to number two. Pastors must prioritize prayer and preaching that's why the reformers called it a creature of God's word literally created the church was created it was when Peter stood up in Acts 2 that he preached and then the word of God came into existence in fact look at verse 3 therefore brothers pick out from among you seven men of good repute full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty now 
they're saying, all right, it's not right for us to give up the preaching of God's word and the ministry of, of prayer. That, that just takes too long. So therefore, in light of that, we've got to designate people for this duty to help us out so that we prioritize this, so we make time for this. Now, these were the apostles. And there is an office of the apostle, but that office has died out with the first apostles. But the office of pastor, while it's distinct from the office of apostle, there is carryover in terms of responsibility, and especially right here with the ministry of prayer and the ministry of preaching and teaching God's word. Now notice right here where it says brothers. It's very interesting. We've got to make a point, observation right here. The Greek word right here is plural, and it's adelphoi, and it's speaking not merely to men, it's speaking to men and women. It means it's used to say brothers and sisters. So like oftentimes we, we say all mankind. We're not talking about just man. We're talking about men and women, right? In the same way, we're, we're say, they're saying brothers and sisters. In other words, we're saying the church. So who, who's given the responsibility to pick out the deacons, to select the deacons, to, 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 uh, to, uh, to, to give uh, authority to the deacons. It's, it's the church. It's not a bishop. It's not a pope. It's the congregation. This is why we're congregational. We're congregational by conviction, not out of convenience. We're Baptist by conviction. That means that we don't have some authority structure where someone way out there comes and tells us who our leaders are. But what do we do? You, we, every year we have a voting of the, a nomination of deacons and then a voting of deacons. And let me tell you, that's one of the most important jobs you'll have all year, every single year. And also when a pastor comes... When my day comes, I, I, I had this and I preached a trial sermon, then you voted uh, in view of a call. It, I came in view of a call, I preached, you voted. If you voted me down, then I wouldn't be the senior pastor. It's not because some bishop out there said, all right, you're going to be the pastor here. It says right there, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. So that tells us, number three, members must select godly men for deacons. Members, this is a responsibility you have and you hold and you must bear this responsibility with great care. Notice it says good repute, meaning good reputation. All right, so we don't need deacons, not just in this church, but in any church. We don't need deacons who have shady business dealings and they, they have sketchy reputations in the community of being rounders and being this and just, well, they know a lot of people or they're, they're, they have a family name and so there's a popularity contest. We, that cannot happen. Can't. Good reputation, as it says. And full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. Well, what's the fruits of the Spirit? Love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So you've got to ask these questions. Are these men gentle? Are they wise? Do they have a good reputation? Are they godly? Members must select godly men for deacons. Mark, Mark Dever, he said, you don't want people serving as deacons who are unhappy with your church. The deacons should never be the ones who complain the loudest or jar the church with their actions or attitudes. Quite the opposite. 
The deacons should be mufflers and shock absorbers. I love that picture right there. What does a muffler do? You know what a muffler does? You ever had a hole in your muffler? What does it, what does it do to your car? It makes it sound really loud. And you fix the muffler, you fix the problem, and guess what? It takes that loud noise and it, and it, and it lessens it. And a shock absorber. So you can take like some kind of issue going on and what does it do? It lessens the blow to the, to the pastor, to the staff, to the rest of the church. That's what good deacons do. They serve well in that way. They take the shock out of the jarring shock if it's a bumpy ride for a season. He goes on, he says, you also don't want to nominate deacons who don't recognize the importance of the ministry of preaching and teaching, but people who are anxious to protect it. Again, the, the protection of preaching and teaching God's word is what started the office of deacon, and there are only two offices in the New Testament church, the office of pastor and the office of deacon. And the whole point of the office of deacon from Acts 6 is to protect the pastor's time so that he can preach and teach and pray. He says, more broadly, you want the most supportive people in the church to serve as the deacons. So when you're considering, I think this is a good word for all members, when you're considering who might serve as a deacon, look for people with gifts of encouragement. That's a good word. Deacons are to be the chief servants in the church, the chief, the model servants serving the church in order to protect its unity by protecting the pastor and his time for studying and preaching and teaching God's word and prayer. And of course, there's visitation that goes along with that. Now, let me just say a word about our deacons at First Baptist Enterprise. We have phenomenal deacons. We have such godly men serving as deacons. I'm not just saying that. I've been here nine years, nine and a half, not some nine years, almost a decade. It's hard to believe. But for about half that time, I've served as associate pastor, and I looked upon a deacon's meeting from that perspective. I went to all the deacon's meetings then, and then as a senior pastor, I've looked upon it with that, and I went to all the deacon's meetings then, and you know what I see? I see godly wisdom. I see, I see hearts that love Jesus and love their church, but the, the, the greatest... Um, arena that I see our deacons thriving and, and showing themselves to be so godly and so Christ-like is not in our meetings, but it's in our community and in their homes as they love their wives, as Christ loved the church, as they serve the least of these in, in, our, in, our, in our church and, and they serve our church in different capacities, as they give words of encouragement to different people. Let me just give you a tangible example over the last uh, few months, last couple months. Obviously, with this COVID-19 journey, it's been a journey. And I, I just, I didn't take that class in, in seminary on how to, <laughs> how to pastor through a pandemic. I just missed that class. That was an elective. I didn't, I missed it. And so, I, I mean, we're, every week we're going back to the drawing boards of staff. We're like, all right, so <laughs> what do we do now? What, what, what do we do? And we've, we've, we've had a great time through this because it's been a lot of prayer, but we've had, boy, we've had a tough time through this because um, we've had uh, friends getting sick from COVID-19. There's just been a journey. And, of course, we hadn't had to, we, we, we hadn't been able to function the same. And we're just grasping at information. We're trying to make the best decisions based on the information we have. And one of the things that I was burdened for as a pastor is how can I care 
how can we care for our people during this time? There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, a lot, a lot going on, a lot of anger. How do we care? And the best way is just personal touch. And so I called on the deacons. I knew I could. I mean, the staff, there's no way. We've got 2,000 people on roll. There's no way we can reach out to all of them. And so I called on the deacons. I said, can you make a phone call? Just a simple phone call. Day by day, week by week, can we just kind of divide and conquer? And sure enough, they did. And by God's grace, over the last several weeks, the deacons have risen up and they have shared, they, I've, I, they've helped share the load and the responsibility and they've just made personal phone calls. And there's just something I couldn't do by myself to different families and we've gone through the whole role. Now, if you didn't get a call, it's because we didn't either have your correct information or some, some kind of, you fell through the crack. So I'm sorry about that. But I know the deacons tried and, and tried hard and worked hard. And that's just a tangible example of how thankful I am for the deacons at First Baptist. And I just gotta say, keep it up, keep it up. Now, when it comes time to selecting, of course, First Timothy 3 gives us uh, more specific qualifications. Let me just read this to you. It says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they, approve, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife managing their, their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, select godly deacons. When a church has good and godly deacons, a church is blessed. The pastor's blessed, the people are blessed. When it becomes a popularity contest and that kind of stuff, a church is not blessed, the pastor is not blessed, the people are not blessed. Select godly deacons. Look at verse four. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Again, you see the priority right there. Verse five, and what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. If anybody's looking for names for babies or grandbabies, there's a good, good biblical names right there. We don't see much. Verse 6, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. That was a way they showed official approval and uh, officially recognizing these men as in the office of deacon. Verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You see that? What happened? The word increased, meaning God saved sinners. There, were, there, were no, there was a number of disciples multiplied. More people were saved. Not only that, even the priest, some of the priests, the very ones who were most hostile toward the gospel, guess what happened? They got saved. And so that leads to number four, last point. Churches grow when everyone serves. That's not an absolute promise, but it is a general truth. 
It's general truth. That, that, that churches grow when everyone serves. Members serve by selecting godly deacons. Godly deacons serve by protecting the unity of the church. Pastors and, the, and the, the time for the pastors. And pastors serve when they spend the time that's needed in preparation, in prayer, and digging into studying God's word and preparing God's word so that we can feed the sheep just as Jesus commanded Peter. Feed my sheep. So there's an end game in you serving the church and you having a good attitude and you in doing your part, whatever the role that is. There's an end game to that. You know what the end game is? It's not to make you feel better about yourself. Now, of course, there are all kind of byproducts. Like it, it, it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to serve than to not serve. You're, you're going to be happier when you serve. The, the, the most unhappy people in the world are the ones who never serve. Just it's kind of a general idea. But the end game is for the blessing of the church and really for the growth of the church. Now, when I say growth, I'm not talking about mere numerical growth. I'm talking about biblical growth, healthy growth. And I would define it like this. A growing church is one that increasingly reflects the character of Christ. Now, we want that to include numbers, but that's just one sliver of the whole pie. A biblical church, a healthy growth is one that increasingly reflects the character of Christ. That's what we want. Let me ask you, is that what you want? Is that, is that really what you want? I started with talking about Anthony Davis. Let me just give you a quote he gave in an interview one time. He said, me playing well and us losing doesn't mean anything. He said, I want to win. So I don't care about having two points, four points, or even 30 points. As long as we win, that's all that really matters. But let me ask you, is that your approach to serving in the church? It doesn't matter where you serve. It doesn't matter where you have a, whether you have a position or not. It doesn't matter if you're a greeter, a, a, a encourager, by writing notes, or just you know somebody who doesn't complain, or maybe a deacon. It doesn't matter what capacity you serve in as long as we win, as long as the church grows. That's all I care about. As long as, as the church increasingly reflects the character of Christ, that is my desire. That is my heart. Is that your heart? And if not, would you pray, Lord, give me that heart. Because the psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Out of your love for Jesus, don't you want the church to grow in health, in Christ-likeness, so that the rest of the world will look to the church and say, you know what, I know something about Jesus now. Because of the way they look to you, and the, way, the way they look to us. And everybody has a part to play. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would... We would take great responsibility in doing our part, in serving the church well, doing what you've called us to do. It's not a small task to be called to serve, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Help us to serve in the different capacities you've called us to. We pray for healthy pastors. We pray for healthy deacons. We pray for healthy church members. We pray for a healthy church. We pray for a growing church. 
And we cannot do that without your help. Bless us, Lord. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.